Chapter Eighteen of East by West by Henry W. Lucy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Chapter Eighteen: Roadside and River. We left Nikko at eight o'clock in the morning. Our cavalcade, as usual, the centre of a dumbly staring throng comprising one third of the population of the village. As we dashed down the uneven street, with a stream of fresh water running in the middle, another third of the population, chiefly women, were kneeling on either side, washing pots, pans, kettles, dishes, everything but the children. These last were running about, hideous in their dirt, yet withal plump and well-made. In those reforms which the wise and far-seeing statesmen who now rule Japan are pressing forward, it should not be difficult to introduce one on behalf of the children who swarm in the streets of country hamlets. When Mr. Ito, not our guide but the Minister of State, recently made his journey to Nikko, his quick eye noticed the condition of the roads, and his practical hand promptly plucked at the root of the evil. He must have seen something worse in the pitiable state of the children, which varies only in degree of dirt and consequent disease, whatever road be taken through the interior. The Japanese government, with all its newly grafted Western ideas, is essentially paternal. It should not be difficult to make and enforce a few simple sanitary rules on behalf of the children. Their mothers and fathers could not take it unkindly, since they are scrupulously clean about their own persons, and would rather go without their evening meal than their evening bath. At the end of the long street, which is Nico, stretches a shady avenue of cryptomeria with the sunlight gleaming at the far end in hot summer weather this must be a grateful place for the dusty traveller like the shadow of a great rock in a weary land in november the mornings are like those in late spring in england and almost as leafy though the trees have taken on autumn tints in addition the chrysanthemum is blooming in every garden and often by the wayside the rice harvest is in full swing and close by the brown wet earth whence the crop has been cut there are long furrows in which bright green shoots of some other crop boldly stand up so fruitful is the soil of japan when skilfully treated and so kind the weather that in many places two crops are garnered in every year. I read a good deal about Japan before starting to visit the country, and it is with ever-increasing astonishment I recall the fact that from no book did I get the impression that Japan is a country beautiful to look upon. Yet it is surprisingly fair in all the varieties of hill and dale, fruitful plain, and water everywhere. We stopped at Osawa for tiffin, Ito providing for us in the accustomed, civilised, bountiful style, whilst the men who had run twenty miles since morning contentedly ate their eggs and rice, deftly fishing the latter out of bowls with their chopsticks. 
across the beam of the tea-house were pasted sheaves of little bits of paper being the introductions of travellers who have stayed there these letters of introduction form a connecting link between series of tea-houses throughout the country one landlord passes his guests on to a friend at the next stage as he has guests recommended to him from the preceding halting-place the abundance of these scraps of paper testifies to the popularity of the tea-house at osawa we were introduced to a fowl of great and peculiar beauty though not unknown to poultry shows in england he was of perfect shape of bantam size and his manifold feathers were turned the wrong way as he strutted about conscious of the important part he was playing in maintaining the prestige of japan the tip of his tail-feathers tickled his comb with a persistency maddening to a bird inspired with less lofty purpose ito was much interested in this phenomenon and wondered how it was brought about at Nikko there is a temple where a portion of the elaborate carved work on a pillar is turned the wrong side up with intent to defeat the malign purpose of evil spirits it is believed that if the temple were finally completed the demons envious of its perfection would destroy it therefore a few inches of the carving is turned the wrong way to show that the building is not finished remembering this i suggested that the bird's feathers were turned the wrong way to show that it was not finished i don't think it's that ito said though there was no tone of strong conviction in the assertion poultry is the one livestock in which japan may glory the horses are miserable the cattle what there is of them are stunted and ill-fed the dogs are the veriest curs not worth the trouble of tying round their necks the little wooden labels on which are written the names and addresses of their owners but poultry are abundant they take kindly to their food and though not particularly good when brought to table yield large returns in the way of eggs more rice-fields on both sides of the road all the way to omaya men women and children busy in the fields and the old men and women at home spreading out the rice on the drying mats we passed a little mite certainly not more than four years old trotting along the road bravely carrying a big teapot in front balanced by a baby strapped on her back placed in the scales baby and teapot would have made the little woman in the other scale kick the beam but having them once fixed on and being set going she trotted along dressed in clothes exactly like her mother's cut short to her size we reached omaya just before dusk completing forty-six miles in the day and having done one spurt of fourteen miles in an hour and three-quarters ito does not think much of this we have each two coolies whilst he has done fifty-five miles in a day with a single man moreover there are three men in tokyo who can do seventy miles in a day 
and one, a prince among his fellows, who does this distance within twelve hours. Whilst dinner was being made ready, I wandered about the roomy kitchen of the tea-house, and held a good deal of conversation with its inmates, scarcely any the less interesting because neither understood the other. The Japanese are such a good-tempered, merry race that it is a pleasure to talk with them, even when nothing comes of it. The ground floor of the tea-house opened to the street, silent save the voice of the blind shampooer calling for custom, formed a striking picture. Outside, after the manner of the old English inn, there swung a signboard covered with cabalistic signs, whose meaning was plain enough to the wayworn native traveller. There was no door, porch, or entrance hall. The front of the house had simply been taken down or pushed back, disclosing a long, low interior, its recesses and unexpected nooks dimly lighted with oil lamps and here and there a Chinese lantern. From the thick and blackened beams of the ceiling hung sheaves of letters of recommendation, mementos of vanished travellers. The room on the left, by day a passage and by night a bedroom, had all to itself an oblong lantern eight feet long, furnished with farthing candle-power, but diffusing a wonderful soft light. It was well it was not too brilliant, for a little further on, in a recess leading out from the main passage, was the bathroom, with four men naked and not ashamed. On the right, a few steps along the raised matted floor, which no boot or shoe has ever pressed, was a broad flight of eight steps, leading to the only upper story. Little waiting maidens, always chattering and laughing, were running up and down serving the dinner of the native guests. The kitchen ran the full length of the house behind the staircase. It was full of twinkling lights, amid which moved dusky figures bent on domestic duty. On the right, behind a charcoal stove with many openings for pots and pans, stood the Japanese cook in the flush of evening work. A little lower down, kneeling over a modest hibaichi, was Ito cooking our dinner. The glow of the fire reflected on his face brought out the supernatural gravity with which he tested the savouriness of the mulligatawny. In a dark shadow in a part of the kitchen nearest the street squatted an old gentleman with head closely shaven save for a love-lock over his left ear. He was making tea by a fire sunk in the floor, only making believe to brew tea, I suspect, his principal interest being to retain a snug place by the fire. As he spread his skinny hands over the glowing charcoal and felt the fire, the expression of his face resolved itself into a fixed, mild smile that began on his thin lips, illuminated his bare brown face, and shone with subdued lustre over his shiny, shaven head. Our bedroom, which served also the purpose of dining-room, was neat and clean. Over one wall was a large scroll with writing on it, 
I thought this was what is known in Japanese house furnishing as a poem, but Ito explained that it was an injunction to temperance. If you drink, Ito literally translated it, you will miss your hairs. A poetical fancy which seems to require some thinking over as a preliminary to comprehension. We started from Omaya to catch the steamer at Koga, our men trotting merrily along as if they had been resting through the earlier days of the week. It was again a bright English May morning, so clear that among the clouds in the horizon to the left we could distinguish the white cap of Fuji. We had a desperate rush to catch the steamer, and would have failed but for a strategic movement on the part of Ito. Taking on a fresh coolie, he went in advance, and reached the pier just as the little steamer had got into the middle of the stream, and was heading for Tokyo. In obedience to Ito's signals, the steamer obligingly put back, and awaited our arrival. It also waited till Ito had concluded a purchase of crockery, for we were to lunch on board, and plates are not included in the odd property of a river steamer. It was a curious little craft, with paddle-wheels, and a hurricane-deck on which passengers stepped from shore, and whence in reaching the cabin they made a perilous descent onto the bulwarks. Captain, officers, engineer, and crew, about seven all told, were in a condition of wild excitement on discovering the nationality of their passengers. As far as they were concerned, Ito might have lingered to buy up all the plates in Koga, so long as they were permitted to revel among our belongings. Our coats, our dress, our pipes, and our boots were in turn the object of their curious regard. But the great object of interest was a pair of air cushions, which, by the way, persons about to make a journey in Jinrikisha should never be without. These puzzled them beyond measure, till the captain, observing the brass nozzle, ventured to blow into it. To see it gradually inflate filled them with unalloyed delight. The first mate, who had apparently been having his watch below, and called up by a sudden alarm, had forgotten to put on his trousers, seized upon the second cushion, and blew into it till I was obliged to take it from him another blast and it would have burst all this time the crowd on the beach had been gathering including a large contingent of two-headed children there was some fear that we should never get away but ito having come aboard and a deputation of two jinrikisha men having come down to bow their acknowledgments of a little present made in recognition of their manful work the engineer, who had not been able to get hold of one of the air cushions, spitefully blew his whistle, ropes were cast off, and we moved out into the eddying yellow stream of the Tonegawa. We passed onward through a level and sparsely populated country. The banks were flanked with willow trees, and now and then, from under their overhanging shadow, we disturbed a flock of wild ducks. We steamed past several junks floating with the current, and by many men fishing out of punts. 
our young gentleman from glasgow was at this stage of the journey the most interesting feature in the landscape seated on the deck his boots at any time an appreciable object on a square acre of ground came into full and prominent view they were shooting boots made to his order with exaggerated soles spreading beyond the uppers and the tops lacing well above his ankles the bare-footed japanese crew regarded these monstrosities first with awe then with an overmastering curiosity that brought them at whatever risk to group themselves on the deck around the boots i suppose someone was steering the steamer and i could see the anxious engineer with his body thrust upward through the circular hole that gave ingress to the engine-room but i declare there was no lookout every other man of the crew from the captain downward being seated round the young gentleman from glasgow examining his pipe feeling the texture of his scotch tweed running their fingers over his ribbed stockings or glancing sideways at his boots he on his part freely entered into conversation with them having great faith in the english language when slightly improved by use in glasgow moreover he had a small glossary of japanese words with this in his hand he managed to conduct a conversation of much length though of doubtful meaning when in a fix and having slowly repeated syllable by syllable what he had to say in the english tongue he finally put his mouth to the ear of his interlocutor and bawled the words over again as if deafness naturally accounted for the difficulty of comprehension at length the united efforts of the captain and crew succeeded in making clear that they wanted him to take his boots off one naturally supposed that the steamer being so small they wanted to trim her but as they left the boots together on the same side of the vessel they were probably afraid of the ravages of the nails upon their deck when the excitement had subsided and the crew returned to their posts i saw the captain heave alongside take up one of the boots gaze reflectively upon its broad spike-studded sole put it gently down and go away after a few more turns he would stop take up the boot again turn it over in his hand and replace it in the afternoon coming on deck after luncheon we caught the first mate still without his trousers in the act of trying on the boots right away in the stern of the little steamer only approachable with infinite peril of tumbling overboard was a minute cabin registered for the conveyance of sixteen passengers if the sixteen had been herrings they might have been packed in but it was difficult to see how any other kind of passengers could be so dealt with nevertheless if we wanted deliverance from casual passengers we three must pay sixteen fares which in the end we did the total amounting to a little less than three pounds 
forward of our cabin separated from it only by sliding panels with glass windows was another cabin there was no one in it when we went on board but presently it began to fill and long before we reached tokyo we had ceased to regret the little extravagance in the matter of a private cabin an hour out we began to pick up passengers thereafter they came and went on crowded wharfs through miles and miles of country gradually increasing in signs of life and labour the steamer did not always stop to be moored at the wharf out from some little ferry would shoot a punt with a solitary passenger on board the steamer slowed but did not take the trouble to cast out a rope when the punt got alongside the passenger taking off his clogs threw them on board then jumped on himself the steamer puffed ahead and the punt soon faded in the distance all the native passengers before touching the spotless deck of the steamer took off their clogs one of the crew or possibly it was the purser handed each a wooden check a corresponding one was tied on the clog and as the passengers departed the clogs were claimed at a place called saki the river divides and the little steamer went through a difficult and dangerous passage to reach the branch that leads to tokyo what had frequently been threatened occurred and she ran aground after a desperate struggle she was pushed off and safely reached the pier at saki where a great crowd of passengers awaited her arrival saki is a busy place with a considerable number of junks and sampans a double row being fastened to the wall the river junk is a japanese home and we saw varied domestic arrangements going forward in these lying quietly moored looking at one junk slowly making its way into the broad stream we saw two naked bronzed figures under the overhanging stern it seems to be the maritime habit of saki that when a junk puts out two of the crew jump overboard and push her from the stern through the shallow water which not infrequently merges in a mud-bank passengers came on board squatted on the floor of the cabin next to ours sitting as near the hibachi as possible though the sun was streaming hotly down out of a cloudless sky most of them were smoking men and women they seemed to pass the time pleasantly enough bowing recognitions or farewells chatting smoking and laughing at five o'clock we turned into the canal and made our way through a densely populated quarter of this suburb of tokyo the canal which lay almost due west was the pathway of the setting sun and was ablaze with splendour in the borrowed rays the town itself was not without interest seen from this new approach but the captain through ito earnestly besought us not to remain on deck it seems the little boys of tokyo have discovered that it is very hard to catch them after they have thrown stones at the steamer as it makes its way through the canal accordingly with the pleasant humour peculiar to little street boys in all parts of the world 
they stone the steamer not without result as some broken windows in the cabin testify but we did not remain below long it was worth risking something to pass through this busy hive of life with the chinese lanterns beginning to glint amid the growing dusk and all the glory of the setting sun crowning the head of fuji End of chapter 18